I'm Jason Notoris, and this is SPE Talks to Shauna Noonan. Welcome to the SPE Podcast. If you haven't subscribed yet, we encourage you to do so. Great way to keep up with the latest oil and gas technical trends and valuable information. And joining us in studio, a special guest, first episode of the new year, our 2020 SPE president, Shauna Noonan. Any big resolutions to turn the page for the calendars? Instead of the standard lose weight, make more money, again, (laughs) I'm being a little bit more um, big picture. So in order to be successful this year as SBE president, I have to make sure that I am healthy. I also am am trying still to figure out how to balance my SPE obligations with family. I have a daughter that's going to be graduating high school this year, so I need to make sure that I'm home for graduation and prom and to be getting them set up for college. And then a big thing is really just to stop and smell the roses. And this really hit me when I did uh, one of my visits in December, and it was to Quito. And people will ask me saying, wow, what was Ecuador like? And I'm, I was there for less than 24 hours. I saw this beautiful city through the windows of a car or my hotel room, and I really didn't get a chance to experience it. So that's one thing I'm really going to make a point of doing over this year is during my travels and my visits, just taking the time uh, to go out and enjoy these beautiful cities that our members you know, reside in and or you know other areas with oil and gas. So at the end, once I'm done and looking back on my journey as SPE president, again, it's, it's gonna be more of something other than just being inside of hotel rooms and corporate offices and that. So that's, that's my big to do. Again, it's gonna be interesting because then that's also gonna be impacting, it's gonna could be making my trips longer, but it's also going to be more time away from home. So again, again, trying to find that balance. I haven't figured it out yet, but that's one of my big, big resolutions this year. I like that perspective though. And, and as someone who likes to multitask, you could always just take your jog while smelling the roses. Yes. <laughs> All right, so what about New Year traditions? In my family, we eat pork and cabbage, which I like, so there's no problem there. Um, then we'll also get some confetti, some poppers. This year, something kind of new, so I don't know if you want to call it a tradition. I hope it becomes a tradition. My wife took our Christmas tree decorations off, and then she replaced them with festive New Year decor. I dig it. I fully support it. So I'm going to add it to our traditions list. What about you? For New Year's tradition that we've started with our neighborhood, because we've lived in the same neighborhood now for 20 years and have all the same neighbors. So we do one of these, it's called a progressing dinner where you start off, somebody hosts, say, the appetizers, and you all go to that home, have the appetizers, and then you move to somebody else's home for the, the, the main dinner, and then obviously for dessert. And, and it kind of got a little crazy there for a while because when you have t- so many families, <laughs> then we end up having, okay, the pre-appetizer house and then the appetizer house. And then by the time you get to the house that's hosting the main dinner, you're already so full um, that, you know, you just can't proceed. So we're trying to be a little smarter this year the way we do it, but that's that's our New Year's tradition. 
for me, even being able to see New Year's is a difficult task because I'm always up so early in the morning. I typically get up at a quarter after four. A lot of that was because I always worked with offices, whether they were in Africa or in the Middle East, and that's when you'd have 6 a.m. teleconferences with them. So it's always been a challenge that I actually stay up to see New Year's because I'm typically in bed by about 9.30. So um, let's see how it goes this year. <laughs> Best of luck. And you have just wrapped up a trip to South America and the Caribbean, kicked it off with a women in energy event in Ecuador. What was the response like there? Oh my goodness. That was the biggest, what I mean biggest, as far as a number of people at a women in energy event that I've been at, there are over 300 people there. And I meant, mentioned people because Again, it was uh, very diverse in gender and cultures. There were people that came there from all over the world. And the the speakers they managed to find were just fantastic. It, it was all in Spanish, so I had to wear the headset for simultaneous translation. Oh, yeah. Now when we're talking New Year's resolutions, that's one of my New Year's resolutions is to uh, learn Spanish. There you go. On an app or how are you going to do it? It's going to be, I guess it'll have to be an app or something through my computer because I'm traveling so much, being able to, to keep up with it, especially since I'm going to be taking the board back to South America in March. Uh, I'm going to have the board meet in Buenos Aires. So I've promised on the Spanish, but also at the same time, when I visited the Brazil section, I mentioned to them that maybe I need to be learning Portuguese. So <laughs> I have to watch. I think I just need to focus on the one. So let me get the Spanish uh, figured out first. <laughs> A good chance to impress in March too. <laughs> touching on a few other items because this looks like a very eventful trip um i'm looking at the agenda some talks you gave at unicamp in brazil then you visited all three sections in argentina one of the more interesting things that i'm noting here is that you took a picture with a jpt magazine that was printed before you were born so this was in rio at their uh, the brazil regional awards a uh, man was recognized for 60 years as an spe member 60 like six zero and he came to the event holding he said it was the second second jpt it was from 1962 and yes that jpt was older than i am and then he also showed up with the first monograph for well logging he was so proud he came in holding them like they were you know like moses with the ten commandments and he he was just so genuine um, so appreciative to what SBE did for him. And again, he, he was just so proud just to have those, those original publications. And I, of course, I'm geeking out. So I was taking pictures of these actual um, documents, the magazine, and also pictures with him. It was fantastic. And have these pictures been thrown up on Twitter, LinkedIn, anywhere? Are they coming sometime soon? I put them on my on Twitter mm -hmm. and um, I have a public Facebook page that I'm going to be uh, actually in the next few days uploading those pictures on there as well. Yeah. And SP International, I'll make sure to retweet that and share the link to the tweet in the show notes of this. So you guys can check out that picture. Let's get into your column. 
uh, the January column, first column in 2020, strengthening the feedstock of incoming talent into the oil and gas industry. This is a great way to kick off 2020. You know, I always look forward to the start of a new year and the tradition of setting new goals, both professionally and personally. And it provides an opportunity for new beginnings and to make any corrections, if needed, to the direction of one's career and self-development. And this was actually, uh, when I was doing the South American tour, we, we talked about setting goals a lot, especially when I was uh, meeting with the YPs. And I knew that this particular topic about incoming talent, oil and gas industry, um, I wanted that to be the January column because, again, I'm challenging so many parts of our industry to set new goals and set difference in course corrections. And, and we'll get into that um, in, in, in a little bit here. It's a very ambitious goal. And I, I hope, at least with this JPT column and with this podcast, kind of stir things up and really start the discussion because I really believe change is needed. Yeah, because you walk into any high school worldwide, the perception is that students are less enthusiastic to pursue higher education in oil and gas than they have been in the past. Well, you said perception, but a lot of places we visited, it's, it's not a perception, it's an actual fact. The one thing, though, I've really learned through my travels, too, is it's so regionally specific. Places like Russia or even Azerbaijan, where the country embraces and realizes the value that oil and gas has on the economy. So the attraction is there for a lot of people to, to be into oil and gas, whereas you come to Europe or even, you know, here in the United States... And we're having problems trying to attract those people. In, in my column, uh, I, I talk about a survey that was done by McKinsey and Company. They compiled industry data in 2018 just to show that over the past 10 years, uh, the oil and gas industry has dropped in being attractive, for lack of a better term. So in 2009, when we were ranked against all the different industries that were out there, we were ranked for the 14th in popularity for people. And when I say people, this is mainly engineers and IT people wanting to come into that industry. And then over 10 years, we've dropped now from 14th down to 35th. And they concluded that given the need for talent, it's critical for the oil and gas industry to deepen and diversify its pool. So how do we change this perception, getting the talented minds to consider oil and gas careers? Before figuring out how to attract the, the, the top talent that we need in our industry, we first need to determine what type of talent do we need. And not just now, but again, being strategic, you know, what we're going to need in the future now, SB has an online training course that I love. It's called Introduction to the Digital Oil Field. And the instructor, Tony Edward, he talks about how the digital revolution of our industry now requires a change in who we need. He says we need more strong generalists who understand the value chain and the big picture and also have great communication skills. And I talk about this, too, in my travels with the YPs and with the students because the data that is coming in now is real time. We are going to have to think faster and make decisions a lot quicker. 
and we're when we're making those decisions, we're going to need to know a little bit about everything that our decision could impact to make sure there's a right decision. We're not going to have time anymore. Say, for example, myself as a production engineer, I'm not going to necessarily have the time now, say, to react uh, to prevent a downhaul uh, pump failure, to go and check with the facilities engineer and check with the reservoir engineer. I have to know a little bit now how, if I were to speed up or slow down that particular pump or even shut it off completely, I'm going to have to know how that decision is going to impact the others. So that's more understanding all the bits of the value chain and then the communication skills, because you can still make those decisions quick. But the thing is, is now you have to communicate effectively so then people can understand what you're trying to do. And then they're going to be able to act in the correct manner that they understood you correctly. If the need for change is so immediate, what is holding up the widespread adoption? What course correction should be made to navigate our industry in the right direction to bring in people who have that mindset to help better facilitate some of the roles that are open right now? Well, Jason, I believe that there's just not one issue that's hampering um, our efforts with attracting that next generation of engineers and geoscientists. I believe there's actually three. The first one's the most obvious, the negative public perception. But then I really believe that it's our unattractive business models, our boom and bust, higher than fire, as well as all the the roles that we have within oil and gas, they're difficult to have when you're trying to achieve work-life balance. So let's break these down one at a time then, starting with your first point. Okay. Public perception. Negative public perception. Now I'm I am proud of all the social responsibility and carbon reduction initiatives that my industry, this industry has embarked on. And I'm very proud to be part of the global solution to end poverty. And this is the way I typically end a lot of my presentations when I travel. Now, our our industry and SBE, we've been working very hard on public education and it hasn't been easy, easy. You know, we all need to learn how to have effective conversations about what our industry does and how we lift the world's population out of energy poverty, which results in increasing the quality of life. And we just need to put away the PowerPoint presentations and tell our story. There's a a TED Talk when it talks about effective public speaking, and there's a quote from that saying that bullets are for the military, dashes are for the Olympics. They don't belong in a presentation. Because we're engineers and we're scientists, just being able to just sit and have a conversation without having to pull out a graph or citing statistics is hard because that's 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 our comfort zone. And so we've really been trying to find ways to teach our own members how to tell the story. Now, creating this narrative was part of SPE's strategic plan, and we just launched a new website. It's called uh, Fueling Progress, and it's actually a place now where we're collecting stories from those who have been really good at having these conversations and a way to educate our own members, but even some wonderful stories on how uh, people, and I'll give an example because we're just reaching out to the, uh, it was a young engineer that I met while I was in Ecuador, and she came from a small community in Ecuador 
that there was a new oil and gas development basically going right across the road from her own family home. And they had a lot of um, negativity about what the oil and gas was doing. Uh, and it was a lot of it was because they just didn't understand. Well, years later now, she's become a petroleum engineer. She's been a very valuable SPE member. And she's been going back into the communities like her own in Ecuador to educate them. And it, I guess it's almost... Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily a fear per se, but again, helping the communities uh, understand that the importance not only in the economy, but also too for the community with um, with educating. And I'll give another great example too. When I was in Papua New Guinea, ExxonMobil has a big LNG plant that's there in Papua New Guinea. And um, they were wonderful hosts for me when I visited there. But the, the the biggest thing I took away, and it wasn't from the plant itself. Again, okay, I'm an engineer. I was geeking out going through the plant. But it was what they've done for the country. The way ExxonMobil said is, as far as the expats, their sole role is to work themselves out of a job because that facility has to be sustainable uh, by the local community. It's been in race but just the the level of education the economy has flourished it that's just a wonderful example of what oil and gas can do in in a much bigger scale and it's stories like that that we're we're, we're going to be using this fueling progress blog for because then if if we find it difficult to tell our own story we can use these in our conversations with others as to telling all the other different stories that are out there and then, then things become a lot easier and the, the conversations just become a lot more uh, fruitful. And what you're mentioning in these examples, there's much more of a connection with that because nothing against presentations or slide decks or the, the bullets and the dashes, as you mentioned, but younger audiences do respond and retain better through more storytelling approaches. And this could be through video, through interactive websites, through podcasts, uh, through social media. All of these are engaging forms of communication that inform on a more personal level. The incoming generation, the the millennials, the generation Zs, it's already been very well documented that in order for them not only to learn or to contribute, they need to have a sense of engagement. And you just can't do that by just throwing out a bunch of facts and having sit through a PowerPoint. And then on to your second point, because I know you had mentioned that throughout this, this one, two, three point process, the first point may be one of the easier ones to accomplish. Two and three are the bigger hindrances right now. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that um, correcting negative public perception is easy. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not. But I firmly believe that even if we, even if everybody on this planet had a very um, positive outlook or, you know, on oil and gas, there's still the two other big challenges that are out there that are hampering. And so let's get into our business models. You know, this is something that we haven't really talked about or challenged, but we got very poor business models. Again, the boom and bust and the higher than fire. And, um, you know, just like any commodity market, we can't control global su supply and demand cycles. And unfortunately, our industry has a reputation of staffing levels that are just a cyclical. And then we've got our poor academic institutions that are trying to uh, pump out enough graduates to meet the demands of a very cyclical oil and gas. And 
then they're stuck even in a worse position because typically, you know, they're reacting a couple years after the fact. So, you know, just when their graduation levels are the highest, we're already now a year or two years into a downturn. And then a lot of these students are not able to get jobs. Um, you know, many companies, they increase the amount of staff when times are good mm-hmm. and then have massive layoffs during the downturn. And this is more prevalent, especially with the service providers. You know, and of course, it's always the latter that makes the newspaper headlines. It's rare that you see that, oh, it's a great time in oil and gas and employment, lots of positions open. They tend to always look at more of the negative side of things and talk about all the layoffs that we have. Well, job security is always important. It's, it's always been important for er- everybody. But now with the incoming generation, they'd much rather have a sense of job security than a bigger paycheck. And, you know, with the reputation our industry has, with our business models, you know, a lot of them aren't not necessarily seeing that job security. So they're going to other industries that, that, that you know, they think they would get more of that. While the Permian Basin is one of the most active and populous regions because of the unconventional shale boom, you know, this region struggles with attracting local young talent because they are witness to how their families and communities were dramatically impacted during the last downturn. Now, there are several companies that have adopted a different business model, and that's basically running a lean organization in terms of staffing, regardless of the cycles. And I'm proud to say I work for one of those companies that didn't reduce staff during the downturn at all. Now, those engineers that didn't have rigs to run or well sites to build, you know, they were utilized elsewhere within the company temporarily. And I use this example of my own organization to demonstrate to my peers that there can be a successful alternative to, again, the hire and fire and the boom and bust a better organization to respond to the ups and downs of industry activity. Now, understandably, you know, finding a better organization model will be more difficult for other areas of our business, such as with service providers or drilling companies. There's actually an interesting chart that's in my article that actually shows the um, uh, employment in oil and gas, and it's split from those that are involved from drilling uh, more of the support services, the service providers, and then the oil and gas producers. And the most significant, starting in uh, late 2014, the most significant drop in employment levels were those on the drilling on the service side. So, you know, that's not a surprise, but they're going to be a little bit more challenged to find a better business model because it's difficult for them to, say, adapt a lean because what they're doing is they're responding to oil and gas companies such as mine when you know things are good okay our service providers were ramping up activity and then of course they need the staff for it but during my travels now and having conversations with some of the biggest service providers I'm really encouraged that they're implementing initiatives to mitigate the loss of talent that they've invested to train during the downturns as well now in order to be moving faster, what I'm trying to do, at least as president, is just to keep engaging with companies on, you know, looking at their business models, being more sustainable as far as staff. And then when I do get the stories from those companies, such as my own and with the service providers, I'm going to be very vocal about it, showing these examples. And then hopefully 
people will learn from that and adapt their models as well. Because there is no sugarcoating it. The business model will likely not be an overnight change. But it is good to hear that decision makers are engaging in conversations for solutions and that we're already seeing some successes adapting some of these new models. But I'm sure with some of these new practices, it's also going to change some of the day-to-day routines for the employee. So we've talked a little bit about the employer and those conversations happening, but how the employee is affected by these business model changes, that's another area that I've heard needs to be addressed. We need to be changing um, a lot of our roles, and we have we have uh, uh, such an advantage with the digital revolution to do that because, you know, the third challenge, okay, first, if we get the positive public perception and we get better business models, we still have another issue out there with uh, the work-life balance that are hampering people from coming in. Uh, and I really believe that it's the work-life balance issue in our industry that is uh, hampering our efforts to increase both cultural and gender diversity. Now, in my engineering career, I've dealt with solving difficult problems. But the most challenging uh, for me has really just been figuring out how to balance my career with raising two daughters alongside a working spouse. Now, there's so many roles within our business that they're hard for a working parent to hold, especially if they're a single parent. A lot of these are more in fields of uh, operations or even in manufacturing plants. A lot of roles where you're having to travel and um, be away from family. Now, when I entered into this industry, I, I knew that I knew and accepted the fact that there were going to be roles or opportunities I'd have to turn down because I wanted work-life balance. I firmly believe I could be a lot further in my career than I am now if I had not turned opportunities to be moving my family international uh, several times over my career or that would have me uh, away from home um, a month or more at a time. And I accepted that. And, you know, I'm still proud of those decisions. But the thing is, times have changed. And the incoming generation, they're selecting career paths to ensure that they don't have to be faced with the decisions that I did in order to have the balance. You make a good point here. Uh, For me, I I would use the term sacrifice because you can only fill yourself up with so much time in the day and you're going to need to sacrifice somewhere with work and life in one direction or another, teeter-tottering back and forth, whether it be throughout the day, throughout the week, throughout the month, throughout the duration of the job that you're holding. So it's making the choices that you think will be best for you, but also trying not to hurt your career growth along the same way, because there's only so much that we can do. In my article, I actually have several quotes and statistics on this, and we're going to have to change. This is something that really is holding people back from entering our industry, especially if we're trying to increase diversity, gender diversity. First of all, we we need to get those people into our industry, right? But then... There, there's a point where, say, five years in, now we're losing um, uh, a lot of our engineers and geoscientists and a lot of women, and that all happens to be when people are having families. It's there. We can see it that uh, we're losing, not getting people in, but we're losing people from staying in our industry because they're not getting that work-life balance. <music> 
it's even more critical for the younger generations that are coming in. Now, it, I mentioned uh, in my article and also earlier in this podcast about this McKinsey study, you know, and it was recommended that, you know, we really need to create and communicate to young workers the possibility that there are flexible career paths and developing such pathways will benefit both men and women, but probably women a bit more, uh, setting them up for future success. You know, if young workers can see a way to balance career and family, they may be more likely not only wanting to come into the industry, but then likely want to stay. And the digital transformation that our industry is going through right now, you know, it's enabling companies to revise roles and positions to offer better flexibility for work-life balance. There's a quote that, another quote that I say that, um, you know, jobs are no longer in spaces, but they're portable work places. And that really, uh, you know, offers more ways to redefine jobs to be a lot more flexible. But I am really concerned whether we're doing enough to keep pace with the needs of the next generation in this area. So one of my objectives as your president during my visits with the young professionals and even the corporate supporters is to encourage more rapid adoption of initiatives for better work-life balance. That Women in Energy event that I did in Quito, there were many presentations on this and there were a lot of people from uh, human resource departments that were there in attendance. And one of the takeaways that came from that was we're going to need both to create change. We need to communicate more with our own human resource staff to let them know what these job roles could look like, and then they can make the changes organizationally and then be able to attract those people into them. So it's it's not going to be us waiting to let part of our business make that change. We're going to actually have to help guide them as to how those roles can look like. So Again, it's their roles that are still adding value to the company, but also, too, they're offering that work-life balance. Because during your travels, you've given really good presentation, investing in yourself and your career. Most recently, a few young professional audiences got to hear that presentation. And it does sound like an interesting discussion about career goals, specifically for the younger generations. When we're talking about coming into the new year and setting goals, I recently was giving this presentation. It was the premise was basically investing in yourself, but a lot of that investment was investing into strengthening your communication skills. For example, something that I would say in a group of my fellow Canadians, if I were to have that same conversation, say with someone from Asia Pacific, the perception and understanding of what we were talking about could be completely different. So it's always being aware of who your audience is and the way they perceive things in order to communicate effectively. So Jason, you know, we've covered a lot of issues now in this podcast all around strengthening the feedstock of incoming talent. And, you know, if we're to do this, we need to provide a feeling of belonging, making a difference, job security, and work-life balance. And this is, this is going to be a tall order because we're an industry that's not known for providing any of these elements. And it's a significant change in direction to where our industry has traveled for decades. 
And again, I timed the subject of this column to the beginning of the new year because this is a time of year when we're starting to, to set our goals and to be uh, cha- making course corrections, whether it's in our career. And now I'm, again, challenging that as, us as an industry, we need to be doing a course correction. You know, we need to ensure that our future workforce is the most talented, diverse, and innovative. But if we can't get this talent into our industry, that's a, a huge problem. And I end my GPT column by saying that if we can't get this talent into our industry, our future may be history. It was very blunt, but I, I was really trying to be strong with this emphasis because I want my industry that I love and I'm so passionate about to thrive. When we see the energy forecast uh, for the future and the needs to be reducing energy poverty around the planet, oil it's critical that oil and gas is there because we're part of the solution, but we can't provide that solution if we don't have those innovative minds to drive the advancements that are going to be needed because, you know, finding oil and gas, it's getting harder and harder. Things are a lot more complex. This is so important on a global scale that, you know, that we need to be emphasizing and getting those people in now. And, um, you know, if, if someone were to ask me what, you know, keeps me up at night or that worries, it, 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 it's this very particular thing. And I'm going to be emphasizing this throughout uh, the rest of my term as SBA president, but even beyond. And then hopefully then I'm just not a single voice. We have the voice of many more of our members to be driving this, getting out into the schools, working with the teachers, uh, having effective conversations, even with our own children to make this serious course correction because it, it has to get done. And it's almost a shame that this is a podcast and not a video because just for our listeners, I need to describe that Shauna's not reading words off of a piece of paper here. You can see the passion and the drive that she has for this message. And it's not just something that's coming off of a whim. You can tell that there's levels and depth of thought that has gone into this. And I really hope this helps spark a conversation. Use hashtag SPE podcast, send her an email, talk to us about this. We would love to hear your feedback. Question of the month is next, but first a reminder that SPE is now accepting nominations for outstanding work in the ENP industry. Take a moment to help nominate your colleagues for the recognition they deserve. The international awards deadline is 15th of February and the regional awards deadline is the 1st of March. For more information, visit spe.org awards or click the link in the show notes. In coordination with Shauna's column, each month we also want to ask you, the listener, a question. We'll be reading some of the responses on future podcasts. So here we go, question of the month. Why did you enter into the oil and gas industry? Okay, so we want to hear from you on this. Email your responses to president at spe.org. That's why did you enter into the oil and gas industry? Looking forward to those responses. Let's keep the conversation going. Use the hashtag SPE podcast to reach us on social. Looking for the latest episodes? Search the SPE podcast on Apple or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. Please leave reviews. We appreciate the five stars and hearing your feedback. 
You can find us online at spe.org slash podcast. And a special thanks to this episode's guest, 2020 SPE president, Shauna Noonan. I'm Jason Notoris, and thanks for listening. SPE podcast is powered by the Society of Petroleum Engineers, whose vision is to advance the oil and gas community's ability to meet the world's energy demands in a safe, environmentally responsible and sustainable manner. Learn more at spe.org.